Good morning. It's the 3rd of September, 2021, and uh, blessed Friday to uh, you and yours listening. Uh, I'm Joe Triton Schmidt. I'm in Gaziantep, Turkey, one hour uh, drive uh, from Aleppo, Syria. Um, it's a beautiful, crisp blue day. Uh, the heat is finally subsiding a little bit, and there's a breeze this morning. Um, so I'm titling this uh, episode, this is the second episode uh, of the podcast, um, Conspiracy to Commit Poetry. And uh, I'm titling it uh, Poetry on the Toilet, tentatively. Um uh, because I wanted to tell you a story about Coleman Barks. And in, if you listen to episode one, I read a poem and talked a little bit about Coleman Barks, his, uh, his uh, translations of uh, Rumi. And uh, there was a time a couple years ago, uh, I was uh, out of the education sector. I needed family insurance. Uh, I was working uh, as a cemetery maintenance man, a grave digger, essentially. Uh, for a small uh, regional city. And uh, I was waking up uh, in the darkness every morning. My, my family was here in Turkey. I was in the United States trying to earn money, trying to bring them to the US. And uh, there's a whole long story with that I won't get into. But, uh, you know, that was not a, uh, you know, the best time of my life uh, digging graves. Uh, I was the only person on that crew with uh, an advanced arts degree, I can tell you that. And, uh, you know, not that that means all that much. Uh, I worked with some very skilled guys that uh, knew about welding and uh, all these other trades and whatnot. Um, but they they didn't read any books and, and they had, uh, some of them had some real uh, ignorant opinions about things and I'll leave it at that. Um, and of course, uh, even the guys that I, I, I didn't get along with so much, uh, you know, we all worked very hard together uh, when you're dealing with uh, burials and whatnot. Uh, you know, there's a lot of poetry in that experience when you see uh, widows and widowers mourning and mothers burying their children and, and these things that you see in a cemetery. Um, Life uh, looks different from uh, a, a muddy grave that you're digging, you know, when you're six feet down, squaring out a, somebody's final resting place. Uh, you know, I'd wake up in the morning for that job, and I mean, like, wake up at 3.30 in the morning in the darkness, and uh, I would try to have a little time to read and write poems. I wrote a lot of poems during that period. Uh, it's how I... I I kind of survived uh, psychically, spiritually, whatever. Um, I'd wake up and I'd read some things I'd write and I'd, I'd pray. And um, So I, I, I was very depressed uh, one morning. Uh, I wrote a, a frustrated email to Coleman Barks. I did, I found Coleman Barks's email address from his website. I sent him an email. And I told him, you know, look, no one's publishing my poetry. I'm, I'm, uh, 
digging graves by families far away in Turkey. But thank you for your um, thank you for your your work, your life's work with Rumi, and uh, which I, I meant wholeheartedly. And I and I said also in the email, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, you know, no need to reply. Well, uh, I don't know. Not too long later, a week or so later, maybe a couple days later, I'm up in the morning, three thirty in the morning, and um, I'm sitting on the toilet. <laughs> you know, reading Rumi, and uh, my phone goes off, and I check my phone, and uh, Coleman Barks replied to me, and he, very short but sweet note, and uh, it brought me all the more closer to his, uh, to his translations. Um, he has long described and long uh, performed and shown that uh, his, his interpretations of Rumi are a labor of love, as, as, as successful as they've been um, commercially, because uh, he's sold an awful lot of books. Um, and for those who would uh, argue that somehow he's in the, in the trade of cultural appropriation, uh, I can think of no other uh, interpreter of Islamic and Islamicate culture into the English language other than uh, Karen Armstrong, the uh, biographer of the Prophet Muhammad in English, peace be upon the Prophet Muhammad, uh, you, you know, Coleman Barks and Karen Armstrong are the, like, neither one of them are, are, uh, are Muslim, but they are incredible ambassadors of the Islamic tradition. Um, as successful as they have been. And they are well regarded in many circles in the Islamic world. Um, I know people in Turkey who their, you know, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi is buried in Turkey, but he did not write in, in modern Turkish. Modern Turkish didn't exist actually in his time. Um, Ottoman Turkish didn't even exist yet. Uh, you know, I'm not a linguist, I don't know what the various Turkic dialects were in Anatolia in the 12th century, but Persian, Farsi, classical Farsi, was the language of the book, uh, as well as Arabic, obviously. Um, so, you know, Mevlana is buried in Turkey, but most Turks cannot read his work in its original language, and they are dependent on whatever Turkish uh, translations there are, and I'm told that there are. But, uh, you know, I, I think the translation of uh, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi into modern Turkish might be as nascent as it was in the English language uh, before Coleman Barks. I mean, so what I'm saying here is that a lot of people in this country that are intellectuals in Turkey, when they, their, their first experience with Mevlana is actually in the English translation from Coleman Barks. And then that leads them to the translations in their first language, Turkish. And, um, you know, I, in this whole world, I know one person that actually can read Mevlana, and that's a, a gentleman I know in Kabul, uh, Kabul, Afghanistan, who I've been uh, corresponding with on the internet for years, who's a, a, a Farsi novelist, and, and he translates uh, Farsi stuff too. So. Uh, you know, if I have a question about the Farsi language, I, I sometimes go to him. Um, his name is Hakim Akbarzada. You could find him on Twitter. Very interesting guy. Um, 
and he taught me a lot about uh, Islam, actually. Um, so, yeah, I was on the toilet, and uh, Coleman Barks wrote me back, and uh, that meant so much. It kept me going, man. It kept me going in a really rough time in my life. Um, so, I have a poem today to read from uh, Rumi, and it's, it's a Coleman Barks translation, and it's from uh, The Essential Rumi. Uh, published in 1995, and this is called A Thirsty Fish. And it's a religious poem, as uh, all of Rumi's poems are. A Thirsty Fish. I don't get tired of you. Don't grow weary of being compassionate toward me. All this thirsty equipment must surely be tired of me. The water jar, the water carrier... I have a thirsty fish in me that can never find enough of what it's thirsty for. Show me the way to the ocean. Break these half measures, these small containers, all this fantasy and grief. Let my house be drowned in the wave that rose last night out of the courtyard, hidden in the center of my chest. Joseph fell like the moon into my well. The harvest I expected was washed away, but no matter. A fire has risen above my tombstone hat. I don't want learning or dignity or respectability. I want this music and this dawn and the warmth of your cheek against mine. The grief armies assemble but I'm not going with them. This is how it's always, this is how it always is when I finish a poem. A great silence overcomes me, and I wonder why I ever thought to use language. Rumi always returns to this idea of uh, the futility of language, and I guess that's the real, the real subject of this podcast today is the futility of language. Um, you know, you're working in a cemetery, somebody dies, you know, you see people grieving. What do you say? We say, you know, oh, my condolences, sorry for your loss. Uh, you, you pray. Um, uh, I remember I was trying to memorize, uh, the first surah of the Quran, Surah Al-Fatiha, which every Muslim who's raised that way knows, but I was trying to learn it for myself, for my my own religion. And, and um, there was a, a uh, Iranian Muslim man buried in, in the cemetery in Kentucky, and, and uh, one of the only Muslims buried there. So uh, it motivated me to learn Al- uh, Surah Al-Fatiha to to say the Surah Al-Fatiha for this uh, deceased person, which is what you do. But as Rumi reminds us, you know, uh, words are inadequate for the purpose of, we, we want to use language to reach God, you know, uh, reach something higher at least, you know, maybe you're not... Uh, if you're not a theist listening to this, uh, we, I don't want to, you know, uh, exclude you from the conversation, you know. But, but again, you know, when you talk about death or religion or God or 
cosmology or metaphysics, you know, uh, uh, you, 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 you grasp onto this sort of higher language, this poetic language, but it's inadequate to the task, you know? Um, Rumi wants to write a poem, he writes a poem and he, and he just sort of, at the end of it, he's silent, he says, you know, I don't know why I even bothered to use language. I feel that way a lot. Uh, that poem uh, speaks to me. And uh, yeah, working in a cemetery. I like to do work with my hands. Uh, labor is kind of part of the, the morning conversation here. Uh, my wife is uh, teaching uh, middle grades English at a uh, school here in Gaziantep. Uh, she woke up this morning. We we talked about the struggles of teaching. Uh, I don't want to, you know, go on a diatribe about that. But it's hard to be a teacher. If you're a teacher listening to this, you know, uh, pay conditions, uh, uh, parents, uh, children, all the difficulties, uh, administrators, etc. All the struggles of that work. Um, and I taught for many years, and and it's 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 difficult. Uh, teachings as difficult as digging graves, or uh, waiting tables, which I've done, or uh, working in a kitchen as a cook, which I've done quite a bit of. I did that for about ten years. Um, doing uh, property maintenance, which I I've done on and off on and off for years. Um, that's part of the, the poet's life, in my opinion. Um, if you're listening to this, if you're a young person and you're like, oh, what should I do to become a poet? I, I would ask people this when I was you know, 18 years old. You know, I want to be a professional poet. Where do I sign up for that? And you know, these college professors would just kind of shake their you know, hand and be like, what, 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 what do you want? You know, because they're a little ashamed. I mean, if you ask a, a a tenured uh, university poet, like how do you become a poet? They won't want. They don't want to tell you the truth, which is you know you get in line and hope for the best, and you know kiss the right rear ends or get lucky or be the right place at the right time. But most people don't get there, uh, even if they deserve to get there. Uh, so uh, they don't want to tell you that. They don't want to discourage you. Uh, they don't want to run you away as a student because they want your tuition. You know. Um, I'm not complaining about them. If someone uh, someone reaches a, a level of of professional success at the in the academy, I'm, I I feel happy for them. I think that's fantastic. There should be more positions like that for uh, poets and writers and artists and painters and these things. Um, and until that day comes, I I, I, I don't think it's uh, good to. Uh, be jealous of that. You know, there's some people that are as well. I don't have my tenured position, so uh, I'm going to hate on whoever does. Eh, I don't see what that, that doesn't help anything either. So, uh, for a lot of poets, though, uh, and I'd say most poets, there's a different path. You know, I talked about Dufu yesterday. Dufu wanted a, a soft government job, and he ended up with a hard life, you know, where he was a... Uh, uh, tenant farmer uh, 
And it, what kills me is I, I don't really understand Tong Dynasty society. So, you know, when I read that he had servants, he was a tenant farmer with servants. So what, 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 what must it be like to be, you know, a, a sort of a bound servant to somebody who pays rent? You know, you're, you're, you're renting yourself to a, to a house renter. It's, it's, uh, I don't know why I have always been attracted to, uh, you know, human misery. Uh, I, I've never felt entirely comfortable, um, you know, when you get a university job and you go onto some beautiful campus and, and talk about books and lofty ideals. I, I know that there's some fool out in a cemetery digging a grave in the rain uh, or the snow or the heat uh, or there's, uh, you know, some woman uh, uh, clean, cleaning uh, semen colored, uh, covered sheets at a motel somewhere for, uh, you know, sub subsistence wages. Uh, you know, I don't want to be, I'm, I'm not uh, Karl Marx, I'm, I'm not a leftist per se, um, I'm rather kind of politically centrist, I would say, but um, aesthetically, I feel to participate in the arts, you need to have empathy, and empathy for uh, a single petal of a rose, and empathy for uh, human beings, especially human beings, because... Uh, uh, I'm a human being and you're a human being. You hear me pronouncing my H's there. I uh, was, I went to university before I realized I did not pronounce my H's uh, as in human and humanity and the humanities and humanitarian uh, and, and I, I would say you human and humanities and humanitarian because uh, you know I'm I'm from Staten Island and uh, which is a rather blue-collar place, uh, you know, or at least over the last century, and uh, you know I'm marked by where I grew up. Uh, that's part of the poet poetic life too. Is uh, you know being born in one place and being sort of lost and wandering in the world. Uh, there are poets that never leave their hometown. I'm thinking of Henry David Thoreau. Didn't travel much, although he, he did uh, go to Maine. He, he, he climbed Katahdin. That's pretty far in the 1800s uh, to travel from, you know, Massachusetts to, uh, to Maine. But he didn't leave North America and he didn't leave the New England region. Um, and he spent really most of his life uh, in, his, in his little town there in, uh, in, in Massachusetts. Um, other poets like Du Fu, you know, Du Fu went all over China. Uh, he traveled pretty widely, he didn't leave China, but you know, you have your Ernest Hemingways uh, that live all over the world. And uh, somehow I found myself wandering. Uh, when I was 15 years old, my family left New York. We went to Kentucky, it was a very different environment there. Um, I've bounced around Kentucky, I've bounced around the American Southeast. I've, Moved back to uh, the Northeast again. Um, I and and then of course ended up here in uh, Gaziantep, which is something I never could have anticipated when I was young. Um, I, I guess I should say this: um, 
part of the poetic life also is uh, accidents happen. I think that's true when you're sitting down writing, you let accidents happen in your writing, and you let accidents happen in your reading, you come across books accidentally that change you. Um, and, and, and here's an example. So I was, uh, I had, I, I was aware of Coleman Barks and Rumi and all that, but it didn't really mean all that much to me. Um, I had not read many, uh, translations by poets from the Islamic world, but here I am going to the Islamic world in 2016 and, uh, to, to Turkey, to here to Antep. And, um, um, I knew a, a photographer in Lexington, Kentucky, a gentleman named uh, David Allen Fitz, who, who takes these beautiful uh, uh, landscape uh, photos and he posts a photo of the sky every single day. And, and uh, he's a, a very interesting man. Uh, um, I don't want to get too much into my friendship with him. It's you know, it's, it's more of a, 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 one of these wonderful social media friendships where you meet in person a few times and then you keep up with each other and you discover that the other person is uh, really sort of uh, deep and, and interesting. And, and David Allen Fitz is deep and interesting. He's an older guy, he's a guy of my father's generation, um, a baby boomer guy. Um, and right, okay, so he knew I was going to Turkey, so he gives me this delicious laughter book uh, by, you know, translations by Coleman Barks. And uh, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm in Turkey, the, the Azan is being called over the city every day. I mean, if you're uh, an American, a Westerner, and you're not used to that, you're, you know, you're sitting around uh, or, or, you know, going about your day, and then over the loudspeakers of the city, you hear this uh, prayer, it's called a prayer God, a long, you know, and uh, it's, it's very uh, haunting or at times almost uh, ridiculous and funny. And, uh, and then after a while, when you get acculturated a little bit, you realize, hey, you know, um, this is a beautiful thing where, um, you know, whatever you're doing in the marketplace, whatever you're doing at school, whatever you're doing at home, uh, here's a moment to remember uh, God, the divine, the, the sublime. Um, just in fairness to all my uh, atheist, agnostic, dissenting kind of uh, people out there, uh, I, I know people who grew up in, in this world who find it oppressive, and, and uh, I understand that too. Um, you know, when uh, I'm not into uh, mandated uh, religion and what about people who don't want to hear that? And, and that's a conversation for a different podcast. Um, the window that I'm looking out on is uh, I'm reading Rumi. I'm, uh, I, I got married. I had a baby here. I'm uh, writing poetry. Uh, and uh, this call to prayer is uh, a new, strange, profound uh, cultural practice that I that I experienced with an open mind you know so um, I'm way off the rails here you know the episodes called uh, poetry on the toilet uh, why why did I call it that well one morning I opened up my email and there was Coleman Barks and uh, I read a poem uh, 
in this episode and it ends with Remy saying, you know, there's a great silence after I write a poem. I have nothing more to say. I, I wondered why I even chose language. So if, if anything in this episode, I'm, I'm trying to answer why I, I chose language. You know, it's, uh, it seems a kind of a, sometimes writing seems like a kind of a psychic, um, uh, evacuation of the, of the psyche, you know, in, in the, in the, on the toilet sense, you know, um, and so much, so much writing is where you're just, oh, this is, you know, you're writing, you're, oh, this is just garbage. Kind of like me talking here. Um, if you're someone who's a writer or a, an artist or a musician of some sort, um, you know, you understand how process works where you're just, uh, you're, uh, you just have to keep doing it. And then one day, uh, something amazing happens. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's my story. I, 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 uh, let me give you another, since we're talking about the bathroom and, and, uh, I've gone to the bathroom in this episode. It's only episode two and I'm already, uh, I'm already into the blue material. Uh, I knew a guy years ago who would, who would say whenever there was, uh, vulgarity or, um, sexuality or unmentionables or whatever in, in a conversation, he would go, oh, you're, you're into the blue material. Uh, anyway, uh, many years ago, I'm thinking 15 years ago maybe, I uh, went to go uh, see the poet, Pulitzer Prize winning poet, Yusef Kuminyaka Reed at the New School University in New York City. Uh, I had had the great privilege of meeting uh, Yusef Kuminyaka while a graduate student in Louisville. And uh, I spoke to him about uh, the Vietnam War, of which uh, he is a combat veteran and has written wonderfully and beautifully. I consider Yusef Kuminyaka the greatest uh, uh, poet of the Vietnam generation. Um, he's a great jazz poet. Um, and, uh, you know, just an amazing writer. Uh, but uh, I, I go to see him at the new school. Uh, who comes and sits in front of me but Danny Glover, you know, is this sort of star-filled uh, evening, you know, of, of literati and, and, and uh, famous people. Sonia Sanchez uh, uh, read that night. I uh, actually met Sonia Sanchez's son working on a political campaign in Philadelphia last fall. Uh, you know, what a, what a strange web we weave. But I went there to go see Yusuf Kamenyaki. He was wonderful. And uh, after the reading, I go into the bathroom and who comes and, and is at the urinal right next to me, but Yusuf Kamenyaki, and we just start talking about poetry at the urinal. And then we're washing hands. And, and he was a very natural, gracious guy you know i've met uh famous people and you see them sort of off stage and they're just awkward and you know why are you talking to being peasant that's not how yusef kominyaka was at all and um uh, i told him i had met him in louisville and i'm not sure if he remembered me i didn't expect him to but and he was wonderful when i met him in louisville too and i and uh this is like two times where a guy took you know 15 minutes to have a, a very small but meaningful conversation. Um, 
you know, I looked for that in poets as a kind of a, a naturalness, a um, empathy, uh, and, I'm, and I mean particularly like poets who are men, you know, manly men poets. I mean, Yusuf Komenyaka is a, is a man. I'm a big, big guy. Yusuf Komenyaka is a, you know, a, a strapping man. I mean, he's, he's a, he was an older man, but he's a big man. I, I wouldn't want to fight the guy, you know? And, and he was a soldier uh, in his youth, you know? He, he's, uh, he's a specimen. And uh, I had a professor at Western Kentucky University, the poet Frank Steele, who was six foot three, had coached basketball at one time. He was in the army with Elvis Presley and, and, and uh, I remember one time I, I was walking down the hallway, Frank Steele walks up to me and he stops and, you know, he's my favorite teacher. So I, I look at him and, and Frank goes, sometimes you look at me like you just want to belt me one <laughs> like this, you know. But, he, but, you know, he was just diffusing all of this uh, uh, toxic masculine nonsense, you know, this sort of pose of oh, I'm a big tough guy. You know, it, it, there are very few places in life where you can learn to be... Uh, a publicly sensitive man that weighs over 200 pounds, you know? Uh, uh, and so there you go. Uh, Frank Steele, 6'3", you know, he's probably a buck, buck 90. I don't know. He's, he's a big dude. Uh, uh, Yusef Komenyaka, uh, Coleman Barks is, is, uh, these are, these are manly men who are, who are, uh, profoundly, sensitive, empathetic, beautiful men. And uh, in American society, there is no place for a man like that. Um, and that's all just coming out of my head, you know. What's the attraction of Rumi, you know, or uh, Dufu, who I, I referenced in episode one, and I will certainly be coming back to Dufu. I might do a whole episode on this poem that Dufu has about uh, straw coming off his roof. Uh, right now, you know, with this podcast, I'm, I'm riffing, so uh, you'll have to bear with me. I hope it's interesting to you. I'm, I'm drinking coffee. I'm, I'm just using up time and, and uh, posting uh, material. Um, if, if, uh, I hope to get more professional with this, but, uh, you know, Dufu and Rumi are, are men's men. They are. You could feel it, but they're full of love. You know, here's famously Rumi's... Uh, friendship with Shams. He just had this spiritual brotherhood uh, with with Shams Tabrizi. Who who was Shams Tabrizi? He was this kind of wandering dervish, uh, uh, a spiritual man of the wilderness, this sort of uh, John the Baptist who comes out of nowhere and and uh, and, and goes to Rumi. You know, Rumi's uh, an official uh religious man you know he's educated he has a uh, a pedigree a background he's from a dynasty of, of theologians and jurists and and uh shams just uh knocks him off his horse you know and in doing so brings him brings him to god and and uh closer to god and uh and of course uh, the world of literature uh has the gift of rumi's poetry uh, all of that is a is really a, a, a direct result uh, of Ruby's meaning Shams and Tabrizi. Um, 
if you go on YouTube, you you know uh, you'll see Coleman Barks telling the story of Shams at Tabrizi. Uh, there are, uh, I'm thinking Muhammad Safi uh, and others. Uh, Muhammad Safi's uh, professor of religious studies at uh, I think Duke University. Hope I got that right. Uh, famous guy, you know. Uh, they, they they go into the you know the the centrality of the relationship between Mevlana and Jalaluddin Rumi. And the wandering dervish Shams of Tabrizi, who just kind of appears in Rumi's life, they have this intense friendship, and then he's gone. And uh, there's a lot of stories of what happened to Shams, but uh, Rumi never got over uh, meeting Shams, and it drove his art, uh, and it drove his religion uh, for the rest of his life. Um, very uh, manly, sensitive love, you know. Uh, Dufu is a guy who, you know, he meets uh, the famous Li Bai, sometimes translated as Li Po. But uh, Li Bai was sort of the Rumi of uh, Chinese poetry in America. What I mean is, like, his, his poetry was very popular here. It's been translated a lot, uh, you know, mostly because Li Bai talks about being, you know, uh, drunk on a mountain. You know, he's a poet of wine, and uh, we like that in America. Um, and uh, anyway, Dufu, as a young man, meets Levi, and he wants to be like Levi. I want to live in the mountains and, and drink wine and look at the moon and write beautiful poetry and not get caught up in the life of chasing after a job uh, with a bureaucracy, a uh, state bureaucracy, or, uh, you know, lying to people in the marketplace. Because uh, that's what, you know, to, to participate in retail sales, you have to change uh, change values and, and, and convince people that something is worth maybe a little more to make more money. And, and I don't want to open up a conversation about halal business. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I will say that uh, Islam is interesting, or Islamic society is interesting in the sense that uh, the idea of fair business is a cultural and religious value that is uh, specifically dealt with in religion. And uh, I, I don't know if that is uh, so uh, directly dealt with in other religions or other traditions, and I could be completely wrong about that. Um, there's a podcast called Let's Talk About Religion, uh, a series of YouTube videos that I, that I love. I'm a big fan of that one. Um, and I, and I tell you that so that if you want to get into more religious stuff, stay there. I'm going to try to stay with poetry, but a lot of the poetry that I love has a cosmological, religious, spiritual dimension to it. Uh, and that's important to me. Uh, if you listen to episode one, I talked to, about, uh, you know, having your feet, you know, in the earth, but leaping up into the heavens. And, uh, this, uh, the Rumi poem I read today is very much like that. Uh, you know, I am the thirsty fish. I'm, 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 I'm on earth. I'm just a creature of Allah. Uh, but I'm swimming in, in Allah's water and I can't get enough of it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in this earth, but I want to be, I want to transcend this earth, you know. Um, if poetry is just a, a word game, it is to a certain extent. I mean, Rumi touches on that in today's poem where he, he, you know, hey, words are sort of inadequate. It's a, 
it's this kind of waste of time in a way. Um, waste of time isn't the right word, I, right phrase. It's, it's futile, you know, you, you can't use language to reach God, but you have to use language to reach God. It's this paradoxical kind of thing. And um, I'm totally rambling in this essay. I, I uh, uh, in this uh, podcast, I apologize. Uh, yeah, man, poetry on the toilet. Thank you, Coleman Barks, wherever you are for uh, writing that email. Thank you, Frank Steele. Uh, I, I saw Frank Steele last uh, at the memorial service for his wife, Peggy Steele, who passed away. And Peggy Steele uh, was a, uh, a very talented poet and piano player in her own right. Uh, her and Frank were married for many, many decades uh, in this world. And uh, Frank survived her. I believe Frank's still alive. But I, I, I saw him a couple years ago at her memorial service after she passed and uh, I had not seen Frank in a long time and he was you know on a walker and it was uh, you know it was something else to see him you know so Frank thank you Frank Steele wherever you are thank you Coleman Barks thank you Yusef Kuminyaka uh, for uh, you know uh, talking about poetry uh, you know at the urinal and at the, at the washing our hands uh, and and talking about life and death and poetry in the Vietnam War and fathers in 15 minutes, uh, you know, after you gave an incredible reading and, and thank you for not being a pretentious uh, jerk like so many famous uh, people. And thank you, uh, Dufu, and thank you, Coleman Barks, and thank you, Rumi. Yeah, uh, this episode too has been a complete disaster. I'm gonna try to get out of it here. Um, if you're wondering about the, uh, when will I do another newsletter? I, I'm, I'm gonna try to do one once a week. I, I don't wanna do one uh, once a month. I wanna do it more than once a month, but I don't know if I'll, I'll have the time to do it once a week. Right now I've got time. Um, you know, I've, I've got a three and a half year old daughter who's here I'm watching today. I'm, I'm trying to help my wife. I'm looking for work. I'm, I'm doing other work, so. You know, I'm, I'm living a busy life. Uh, I hope you are uh, enjoying this or taking some sort of value out of this. Uh, this will be uh, another free podcast. At a certain point, if I if I put together something that's of great quality, I'm, I'm going to put a paywall on it and, and see how that works. Um, but thank you so much for your time listening. If you have any kind of comment, uh, advice, a complaint... Uh, a Bronx cheer, I will absolutely uh, cherish it. Um, I wrote a blog uh, years ago called Joe Schmidt Writes About Something, and uh, I, I, I got a comment on one of those just the other day on, on email. It was, and it was kind of a crazy person, uh, but I still liked getting the crazy person's comment. Now, if I actually got anywhere with this stuff and, and uh, it, it, it was generating revenue and I'm busy and I'm having to put more energy into it, um, it would probably be a hassle to get emails from crazy people all the time. But uh, crazy people, you know, crazy people are creatures of a law too. So um, wherever you are in the uh, quotidian madness of your life, 
if you're on the factory line, if you're digging a trench, if you're uh, changing out somebody's bed, uh, slinging hash, uh, adding up the zeros at the accounting office, uh, whatever you do, uh, working at a school somewhere, working in an office somewhere, working at home in the new remote uh, economy, whatever you're doing, uh, try to make every moment of your life uh, try to try to cultivate your poetic vision and your artistic vision um, because your life needs it thanks